Welcome to the Inspiring Sustainability Podcast. This week, I am delighted to be welcoming Hugo Sparrows from River Simple to join me in this because anticipating we're going to have lots of innovative talk in the conversation today because from the bit that I know about River Simple so far, I know that there's a lot of interesting uh, there. So I'm going to be looking forward to see how we can cram it all into this podcast. Um, so hello, Hugo. Hello. Hi. Delighted to be with you. Wonderful. And uh, what I think would be great, Hugo, is if you just give us uh, a quick soft summary of uh, what River Simple is all about and also uh, maybe just a little bit of history and then we can get into the sort of uh, the questions uh, about what we're looking to achieve. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, I'm, uh, I've been a car man most of my life and uh, spent a lot of time designing and building racing cars, but I was always interested in uh, the environment before, before I got in, into motorsport. And I sort of defended my interest in motorsport on the basis that it was the quickest way to and the cheapest way to improve the efficiency of combustion engines, which I think is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. But I reached the conclusion that you, we needed to get rid of combustion engines altogether. Mm-hmm. And so prolonging their tenure didn't really stack up. And so I got out of motorsport um, thinking that the only future for sustainable cars was better batteries which is sort of big labs, big companies, big budgets, not my sort of oh. world at all, basic science. And then I found out about fuel cells, and uh, I realized that the breakthrough isn't through better materials, better bits and pieces. The fuel cells do exist. Oh. It need, with the breakthrough, the, what really is needed to unlock these advantages, the advantages of fuel cells is system-level innovation, mm-hmm. integration of different components. These components are available in a different pattern of relationships, if you like. Yeah. And, and I started, work, uh, started working on that from an engineering perspective and very quickly realized that the technology wasn't the problem. What were the barriers are more to do with people and politics and mm. business inertia. So, so I, during an MBA, I did a commercial feasibility study on the commercial barriers and started applying this whole system design approach to the business strategies as well as to the car. Mm. And really, that's what River Sim- that spawned River Simple, and it was set up with a, principally with an environmental um, mission. Mm-hmm. But to achieve the environmental mission, it was very demonstrably set up as a for-profit business. Yes. So, because I don't believe that... Um, uh, a big enough, you can make a big enough dent on in, in uh, um, by approaching this through the voluntary sector, mm. and uh, um, and and I think we need to succeed on the metrics by which um, that everybody recognises, which is basically a red money, and uh, uh, we need to do that in order to attract capital into uh, uh, sustainable initiatives. And we need, River Simple is um, designed to make more money from doing the right thing than business as usual makes from doing the wrong thing. Right, excellent. And um, so with it then, the, just tell me, uh, just so that people can understand, um, what does fuel cell technology mean? What, 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 what fuels the fuel cell, uh, for example? Yes, well, uh, a fuel cell is... 
to an extent equivalent to an engine. It doesn't store any energy. It's not mm. like a battery. It's a processing device like an engine. It takes in a chemical fuel, in this case hydrogen rather than petrol. Right. And, out, and it converts it into a usable form of energy, in this case electricity rather than the rotating shaft. Mm. And the, in our car, that electricity is fed directly to motors in each of the four wheels. And uh, the fuel cell, what happens internally is absolutely the, um, the same reaction as electrolysis, but in reverse. So the schoolboy experiment is, um, everybody will be familiar with, of having a beaker of water, putting in water and putting in electricity, mm-hmm. and out comes hydrogen and oxygen. Right. In a fuel cell, you put in hydrogen and oxygen, and out comes electricity and water. Right. So it's exactly the same reaction in reverse. It's just much more difficult to make it go that way. And, uh, um, and it's also um, uh, very much more efficient than uh, a combustion engine. So you're allowing the hydrogen to combine with oxygen, but without burning. It's an electrochemical process, and the energy is given off as electricity rather than as heat. Um, and but it's over 50% efficient. Wow. Now, that's, yeah, that's incredible. So petrol, now, good, a good petrol engine is only 25% to put it in perspective. <laughs> wow, great. Okay. So it's still, at least double. And, um, yeah, so that's great because you're giving me cause, uh, a good 101 now because uh, with my uh, – I, I gave up chemistry when I was 14. Um, <laughs> so I didn't have much. Just, just again, because I gave up chemistry at 14 – how do you make hydrogen? What, what, what is kind of, why is it just so for those who are maybe gave up chemistry when I did as well? Yeah. Hydrogen is the, the lightest, simplest element. Yeah. Um, it's at the top of the periodic table, atomic number one, and um, <clears throat> it is a gas. It's uh, ubiquitous. It's in uh, all hydrocarbons, all living matter, mm. all organic material has, is principally made of hydrogen and carbon. And, um, but you can't dig it out of the ground, you can't pluck it off trees. And so to that extent, it is very important not to think of it as a fuel, mm. as an equivalent to petrol or diesel. It's an, it's an energy carrier equivalent mm. to electricity. Again, electricity, mm. you can't pluck off trees or dig it out no. of the ground. You've got to make it from some energy source. And um, you can make hydrogen from any energy source. Um, at, the most, at the moment, most of it comes from natural gas. There's lots of it made for industrial purposes. But you can make it from electricity by electrolyzing water. You can even directly crack water using solar energy with a catalyst without going through an electrical stage. Right. Or you can make it from biogas or anything like that. Right. And what's the kind of average environmental impact of creation of the hydrogen? Well, the... Um, if you take it from natural gas, where most of it comes from, mm. there it's uh, CH4, mm. and uh, there is CO2 given off. Mm. Having said that, um, and that's the worst form of hydrogen, mm. but it's the, the most ubiquitous form um, in commercial terms. It's the cheapest way of making it at the moment. So that, that we have used... Most hydrogen we're using is, is made like that. Yeah. Having said that... It makes a 60% reduction on a well-to-wheel basis of CO2 emissions um, compared with any other car on the market today. So the lowest emitting car on the market today is about 85 grams. 
uh, which is at the tailpipe, yeah. which works out at about 100 grams on a well-to-wheel basis, including yeah. all the CO2 from extracting and refining and well, so on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in our car, um, on a whole life cycle basis, our car emits about 40 grams wow. per kilometer if yeah. you get the hydrogen from natural gas. And of course, that comes down dramatically if you get it from any other source. Great. But quite frankly, if, hydro, if, um, if you have any green electricity at the moment, mm. we don't suggest that you should use that to electrolyze water right. and have zero emission hydrogen because if you put that electricity into the grid yeah. and displace coal, you'll displace far more <laughs> CO2, yeah, yeah. even though you're then having to get hydrogen from natural gas. Right, okay. Well, but in the long term, we've got to use all sorts of other sources. And the great thing about it, Adam, mm -hmm. is that because you can make it from any energy source, every, we can collaborate globally on the vehicle technology and the hydrogen refueling infrastructure, mm -hmm. and yet let every region around the world use whatever their local mm. mix of renewable sources is. Yeah. And renewables are distributed much more evenly around the planet than oil is. Right, yeah. So it has the massive geopolitical knock-on impacts. Interesting, interesting. So, yes, and I'm sure we could go deeply in that. But uh, that's brilliant because that's given me my kind of like my 14-year-old uh, self um, a good uh, chemistry lesson in in why that part of the innovation of uh, the River Simple car um, is, is so different and so good for the environment comparatively. Um, but uh, I think one of the things that's uh, going to be really interesting for us to explore in the remainder of the podcast is what, what else uh, you've been doing around innovation uh, for sustainability in its broadest terms as well. Obviously, it's not... Well, the car itself is about uh, being good for the environment. Um, I'm aware that there's uh, the, the whole triple bottom line, which is what, what you're looking at. Um, so I'd be really interested to, to, for you to, to kind of like uh, start exploring that with me there. Yes. So okay. I'll, I'll let you start where, where you feel the best place to start is with that. Yes. When I think the, 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 we, are, we labor under a sort of cultural um, assumption that changing one thing at a time is the prudent thing to do. And that's absolutely true if you're trying to optimize a mature technology um, or mature system of any sort. Uh, if you're going for a step change, whenever anybody suggests a new idea that's fundamentally different, all the conversation goes to the reasons why it can't be done. And those reasons are generally true, but they assume that the context within which this new idea is embedded remains the same. Yeah. But that context, if you like, the whole of the rest of a car, was optimized around the old idea, i.e. the petrol engine. Mm -hmm. And putting the fuel cell into a, into a conventional car means that all the connections, where it fits in in this pattern of relationships, all those connections are the barriers because the system isn't designed around a fuel cell. Right. If you are prepared to throw the whole context away and change everything simultaneously, you can make the system work very much better right from the word go and it can mm. instantly look much more attractive. And basically when you're going for a step change, changing one thing at a time is absolutely catastrophic. Mm. It creates barriers and risks. If you're prepared to change everything simultaneously, it lowers the barriers and lowers the risks and that's very counterintuitive. 
Mm. So I've said that about the car, but the same applies to the business model. The business model that we um, are familiar with of making and selling things in the industrial world was really shaped by the 20th century. Mm. And uh, the principal constraints were technological and labor productivity and things like that. The principal constraints that we face, and they, those constraints are what shape things. They drive evolution. They drive progress. Mm. Um, it's always constraints that are the drivers of progress. Yeah. And the constraints we now face simply weren't on the radar in the last century. They're peak resource issues of all sorts and mm. CO2 emissions and energy security and so on. And so <clears throat> it's hardly um, surprising that the business models shaped by the 20th century aren't working very well in the 21st century. Mm. And it's much easier to design a business model to suit the conditions of the 21st century than to tweak a business model mm. designed to do something fundamentally different. Yes. So we are trying to, at the next level up from the product, at the system level, we are, we've, we've developed a completely different business model. We will never sell a car. We will only ever sell the service. We will mm. sell a performance contract, if you like. Mm -hmm. And typically people can sign up for a contract of one to three years. Mm. And that covers all their costs. It's the only transaction involved in their mobility provision, if you like. Mm. Um, it's still their car. It's in their, on their driveway. Um, and uh, they pay a monthly direct debit. And it includes all fuel. It includes insurance. It's much less hassle to own a car this way. Mm. And uh, there's no resale issue at the end of it. Uh, you just hand it back. And we're aiming to come to market as an equivalent cost of ownership uh, as a small family hatchback. Mm -hmm. um, so this completely changes all our drivers. If you, we want the car to last as long as possible, mm -hmm. because when you give it back, we're going to mm -hmm. provide it to a second, third, fourth, fifth-hand customer, so we can sweat the asset for as long as possible, amortize any embodied carbon over as long a period as possible, for instance. Mm. And also, we want it to be as efficient as possible because we're, mm. we're the ones paying for the fuel. Mm -hmm. And that justifies investing up front in building a car that's more efficient because mm. we're the ones that get the benefit of it. Mm -hmm. So it makes it into a commercially sensible decision to invest heavily in making something more efficient, mm. which you can't do in a sale of product model because customers will always discount future savings. Mm. And... So it completely changes the vehicle that you will make if you're designing it for that business model. Mm. Um, and it changes your drivers, I mean, as I said, from obsolescence and high running costs to, to longevity and low running costs. So what it's doing is changing your drivers from um, resource consumption. If you sell cars, you make more money by selling more cars. And so the more resources you consume and put through the business, the more money you make. Mm. And whereas in our model, it, we are rewarded for resource efficiency. We're rewarded for um, uh, delivering uh, as much economic utility as possible, as many people doing um, whatever miles they need to do with as few cars as possible. The mm. fewer cars we can build, the more money we make. And, um, and I personally don't believe that we can ever have a sustainable industrial society based on rewarding industry for the opposite of what we're trying to achieve, mm -hmm. which is effectively the position we're in at the moment. Yes. Um, and then the third level, I 
um, mention is is um, governance. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've I've spoken to somebody in the design community who who talks about three levels of design. D one is the product I've talked about, and D two is the system, which for us is the business model. Mm. And D three to them is is design at the level of ideology, which is sustainability and corporate governance. And uh, and we honestly feel that is as integral as the other two in delivering uh, sustainable businesses. Mm. And uh, so, if you if you want to deliver environmental and social return, we've got to design businesses to do so. At the moment, businesses are designed to maximise shareholder value, i.e., financial return. And so, if you ask them to deliver environmental and social return, which is not what they were designed to do, it's not surprising. It's always a cost on the bottom line. Mm. But environmental and social return are not mutually exclusive with financial return. And if you design the business to deliver all three, then we believe that the environmental and social return that we deliver enhances rather than competes with the profit. Mm. So that is why we regard corporate governance as such a, an integral part of, of, of delivering a sustainable industrial society because we can't, uh, the, uh, the legal duty to maximize shareholder value is there's a very serious mismatch between that and the needs of society. And we've got to bring into alignment the, the drivers of business and the needs of society. Yes. So can you give me uh, a bit more detail about that corporate governance? Yeah. Um, we are a profit company. We have a board that has all the agility and autonomy of a normal board. Mm. It just has a different fiduciary responsibility. We, um, <clears throat> we have six, only six voting shares in the company, and the duty of the board is to balance and protect the benefit streams of those six shareholders. They are six companies limited by guarantee that represent the interests of investors, the environment, the staff, the customers, the commercial partners like suppliers, Mm. and the community, who are all those bodies with whom we have no direct commercial relationship, so local government interest in employment or things like that. And the duty of the board is to balance and protect those six benefit streams. And we uh, do not try to monetize them because many of those benefit streams are only only partially financial or not at all. Mm. We need the goodwill of all those six uh, stakeholder groups in order to maximize the potential of the business. Mm. And you can't really expect to do so if you subordinate the interests of five to those of one. Mm. Um, and um, by putting them all on a symmetric footing, we believe we will be able to generate a greater level of goodwill from all those critical stakeholders mm. than any conventional company will be able to do, and therefore it will be more profitable and more resilient, especially. It will uh, give a healthier balance between short and long-term decision-making and lead to better quality decision-making. I don't believe a business like this could get into the situation of um, Deepwater Horizon or the, mm. or the Dieselgate scandal. Yeah. And, um, 
And so the paradox, I suppose the paradox is that um, uh, if you want an investment in a business like this, um, because it gives a better return, then you have to give up control. But after all, investors aren't really after control for any other reason protecting their investment. And we have many other checks and balances built into the business to give them ample opportunity, as with all other stakeholders, Mm. to protect the, um, uh, their, their, their stakeholder interest. Yeah. We have a parallel board, which we call the stewards board. At the moment, at the size of the company, there's only one director on the stewards board. And the role of the stewards is to um, monitor the activities of the board, report to the, the shareholders, to um, act as a, a judiciary if any of the shareholders feel that the board isn't fulfilling their fiduciary responsibility of balancing mm. and protecting benefit streams. And so there are actually more routes for um, any stakeholder, um, including investors and especially actually smaller investors, to, um, to address their concerns if they feel they're not being treated fairly. Right. Yeah. Great. Okay. So, um, wait, what? Uh, so far, I mean, because uh, how long has River Simple been uh, going? Well, I mean, I've been working on this for fifteen, sixteen years now. Right. Um, and we've, um, but more than half my time has not been on the technology. It's mm. been on these other um, um, other areas of of. Uh, System design. Mm-hmm. Um, we've started. We built the first car uh, between 2006 and 8. Showed that at Geneva mm-hmm. uh, Motor Show in conjunction with Morgan uh, Motor Cars and uh, a couple of universities, Oxford and Cambridge University, and BOC mm-hmm. and Kinetic. Yeah. Um, that led to a, a small, smart-sized car, which which ran around, uh, was able to show, demonstrate the technology because the, the Morgan Life car was only ever an R&D exercise that ran in a test cell. Right. Um, and then over the last two years, we've, we've designed and built our first car for European-type approval for use on the public road. It's not until, until six years ago that we had the first employees in the business, hmm. like two, and it's only in the last three years that it's expanded to the scale we're at now, which is about 15 people on a full-time basis, and and uh, quite a quite a few others who are uh, freelance, um, part-time involved, consulting, and so on. So yeah, so really, it's kind of like the, the last six years started increasing and really started taking off yeah. three years ago. Yeah. Um, so one of the things in across across any of that sort of 15 years or so, but maybe particularly last three to six years. Have you got any examples where the kind of, you know, you're, you're talking about the call for governance and do you believe that it'll lead to the business to be more profitable, resilient, provide better quality, etc. Have you got kind of examples, uh, either anecdotally or, or actually directly, where that's been evidenced? Um, 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 gosh, you've got me on the spot there. I mean, it definitely, it has... It has um, the, the, the governance model and the custodians mm-hmm. have had a tangible impact in 
bringing more voices to the table in in addressing critical questions, mm-hmm. big strategic questions yeah. uh, about partnership with organizations that we might feel, not feel entirely comfortable about mm. um, and balancing the upside of making some progress um, ourselves mm. or influencing them versus the negatives of whether you should do business with them at all. Mm. Um, and um, those are really tricky questions to deal with from, uh, uh, from the perspective of a cohort of people who are all working together mm. without really canvassing the views of others. And, and it's easy to have uh, a system where um, you consult outside and seek advice from other people. Mm-hmm. It's wholly different, um, A, in the outcome, and B, in the, the quality of the engagement, if those outside stakeholders actually have teeth in the process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there isn't, in, in, a, in a conventional board, however much you consult, you close the doors of the boardroom before you make the decision. Hmm. And uh, the decision of the board is based on uh, the traditional legal fiduciary responsibility. Hmm. Whereas in this case, uh, the, exter- the input from these external stakeholders actually um, comes with some uh, legally binding hmm. um, power for the uh, board to listen to and act upon those. So kind of, uh, for me, the kind of summary is basically it it strongly avoids kind of groupthink. Um, Yes. um, Distinctly mitigates against that. Um, Excellent. So um, it strongly mitigates against any in any in short termism. I think. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. So that's and one of the things is that because of the nature of what you're doing. it's not something that uh, it's it's because you're creating this innovative products and things like that. It's not necessarily going to definitively demonstrate straight away, but that it will um, mitigate against the um, it going in the wrong direction. Because actually, most uh, technologies like this and most new businesses, in fact, the vast majority uh, fail um, and don't don't get to market. And from what I understand, you're making very good steps to getting to the point where you'll be getting to market. Um, so you're going to be comparatively an exception that proves the rule. And uh, I don't think it takes a, a genius to work out or a, even, a, even a 14-year-old chemist could work out um, that, um, that, that there's a strong part of that, which is going to be because of the way that you've, mitig- you've mitigated against it with, with, uh, with the, the governance, etc. Yeah. So, I think thing another thing that it does, actually, Adam, I'm sorry to interrupt it, uh-huh. is um, that we have embedded in the articles of the company the purpose of the company, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is to, to pursue systematically the elimination of, in, of environmental impact uh-huh. of personal transport. Now, that's not um, some fluffy PR line. It's actually uh-huh. legally binding on the company. Wow. And, um, and there are two big words in there. One is elimination, which is a very ambitious goal, and we're not pretending for one moment that we are zero impact. But that has got to be the goal mm-hmm. if we have any hope of achieving a sustainable industrial system. Mm. Um, because just being less unsustainable is still not sustainable. Mm. Yeah. And so elimination has got to be the goal, but we're not going to get there overnight. No. So the word systematically is very important as well. It's important that every decision we make Every investment we make um, is all um, taking us towards the end goal. 
um, rather than a short-term investment in some low-hanging fruit that turns out to be a a, a path that can never get to being sustainable, which you then have to write off and go back to square one, set off in a different direction. We've got to make very sure that all the investments we make are contributing um, to the long-term goal, taking us in the right direction, and are not investments that have to be written off um, five years down the line. And, And this governance model ensures that the business stays true to purpose. Yeah, yeah. It stays true to the purpose for which it was founded. Great. Okay, so one of, uh, actually one of the things that I am interested in there, because I understand that actually you had a very, um, uh, and as a final point, and we're kind of uh, coming to the end of our normal half hour for inspiring sustainability. Um, um, so just, uh, can you give me a quick overview of the recruitment uh, process you went through recently? Because I understand yeah. you approached it in quite a different way, and we we uh, worked on what might be regarded by some as a slightly informal basis um, because it's become apparent to us that uh, it's networking and um, uh, uh, personal contact mm. that really gets the people uh, into River Simple who are really a success. Uh, we have had an experience a few years ago of using headhunters, oh. and we found people with all the technical qualifications we wanted, but once we asked the headhunters uh, for uh, a filter of, uh, we want people who are really committed to sustainability, and that's not just, um, they, I recycle my bottles and therefore I'm okay. Oh. Oh. Um, but people who really understand it are really committed to the the, the, the um, uh, the purpose that we've, we are set up mm. to, to pursue. And um, you offer that you suggest that to headhunters, it is one filter too far. Mm. It's like looking for a needle in the haystack. They're not set up to do it. Mm. And we worked with uh, an old friend called Gwyn Jones, mm. who um, is, runs the Associ- Association of Sustainability Practitioners. Yeah. He's just very well plugged into this community. And he just put things out there through his mm. networks. Mm-hmm. And it was extraordinary, not necessarily just people he knew directly, but word of mouth, contact handed on from one to another. Mm. And, uh, and we found people that we would never have found mm. in the eventual process. Um, it was a much more pleasant process to go through. Um, it was a much cheaper process to go mm-hmm. through. Um, and, and it was altogether more successful, produced uh, 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 people to join River Simple who uh, have stayed here um, and are not likely to leave, whereas uh, there's quite a high dropout rate uh, with people who, who come here um, recruited by conventional headhunters, like the technology, but at the end of the day, they're not really committed to what we're, what mm. we're about. Uh, that's not, a, that's not a, uh, a tenable situation. I mean, we are quite a sort of uh, purpose-driven organization, and people aren't, um, we don't have a shared purpose. It's not really mm. going to work out. So it was, it was wonderful. It was really very good news, and um, well, that's, we'll continue to me, work on that basis for our recruitment. It's a fantastic example of the, the effectively, it's kind of part of the corporate governance about how you're approaching things. And one of the things is that you're uh, part of what you're doing is you, you've tested something, that, which was basically using headhunters, and that was the, the, the old model. And actually, what I'm seeing is that in many areas, you're seeing that uh, it's how 
that you've got to use new models in, in many areas because you've got such a new model in, in the core of what the business is. Um, so uh, just to sort of wrap up in, in so to some extent, my, my summary of this is it's been, it really has been inspiring me personally and I hope it will inspire the, the listeners because I see that what the model that you're offering here uh, can uh, help the, uh, in a very practical, down-to-earth, uh, logical, sensible uh, way, can show us what our societies could go towards um, and how we could transform over the, the, the 21st century into something that's fit for purpose with the world that we live in, rather than, as you say, the, uh, using the model that was developed to fit something that worked in the 20th century. And yeah. um, so I'm uh, very, very happy to have um, had this conversation with you, Hugo. Thank you for your time and thank you thank for you. all that hard work over the last 15 years you've been putting into this. It's, uh, it's brilliant and uh, I can only wish you uh, much success um, in your now your launch uh, phase and your kind of beta testing whilst we get it out to the world and hopefully it'll start to, to shake things up and uh, show the world how you can inspire innovation. Brilliant. Well, well thank, thank you very much indeed. I mean, a pleasure to uh, talk to you and um, I hope it is of interest to as many people as possible. Yeah, so do I. Right. And well, if you find anybody, if you find anybody in your networks, Adam, who who is desperate to uh, get involved in something like this, we're always interested. Wonderful. I'll keep that in mind. And if obviously, if any of our listeners will be interested in getting involved, then uh, you can go to the River Simple website, and uh, you can get in touch with uh, Hugo through that. Um, so yes. So signing off. And um, I uh, just delighted to have had this conversation. And uh, so thank you. That's the end of uh, today's uh, uh, Inspiring Sustainability podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.